1606, the bard, William Shakespeare, is credited with having written these immortal words. Life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets its hour upon the stage, and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. You probably know these words unless you failed high school literature. It's from Shakespeare's play Macbeth. But are you as familiar with where these words are uttered in that play? Do you know when Macbeth says these words? The main character, Macbeth, in the play utters these words following his wife, Lady Macbeth's suicide. And Macbeth, staring into the face of death, is overwhelmed by the frailty and futility of life. He concludes that everything he has done through the play and very life itself is ultimately meaningless, signifying nothing. Are you ever tempted to feel that way? If we were honest, I think most of us would admit that we wrestle with that idea at times. Maybe it's the death of a loved one or someone close to us, where we're face to face with the reality of death and our own mortality. Maybe it's a debilitating or terminal diagnosis in our life as there seems to be an end point now out that's almost tangible in our lives. Or maybe it's simply witnessing the mass shootings we've seen over the last week or months in our country. It forces us to come to terms with our own mortality, and we are overwhelmed by the reality of human frailty. Tempted to begin to view this life as a futile series of insignificant events punctuated by an unceremonious end followed by nothing. We are tempted to agree with William Shakespeare that life is ultimately meaningless. But it's worth noting that these feelings are not unique to our age. They're not a 21st century experience. They're not a new phenomenon. In fact, Paul responds to these sort of sentiments in our passage this morning. Read with me from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49. See if you can't pick up on what Paul is addressing here. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow does not, is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same. There's one kind of for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. 
It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would guide our discussion this morning. Lord, we need your power, we need your presence, we need your spirit to illuminate our understandings, to overcome our own sinful nature and our tendency to read your word wrongly. Father, give us light to see, bring illumination and bring conviction. Lord, help us to rest our faith, rest our certainty and our hope in something that is true. Help us to find hope in the reality of your promise of resurrection one day. Father, bless this time for your sake, in Christ's name, amen. Now, if you're new to Faith Bible Church, or maybe you've just forgotten where we are in the book, uh, let me remind you that we're just coming to one of the final chapters in Paul's first letter to this church in Corinth, this Corinthian church. We've been slowly walking through chapter 15 because it focuses us in on the resurrection. First, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and then our own resurrection. And Paul reminds this church that they should find unity first in the certainty of the gospel. We covered that at the beginning of chapter 15, and Dimitri preached on that. That we should rest our faith and our hope in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in addition to that, what we covered last week is we should find unity in the victory that Christ will achieve when he returns. He encouraged the church to look in their review mirror, remember Christ's resurrection, and then look forward to the guarantee of our resurrection when Christ returns in victory. And he says, you should find hope, you should find peace in that assured victory. Now Paul turns his attention to the nature of that resurrection, how that resurrection will take place now, Paul begins this discussion by addressing some hypothetical opponents. This is what's known as a diatribe, if you're familiar, where he imagines a hypothetical opponent and addresses their concern. But it's worth noting that these two concerns he addresses are also skeptics. They're not genuine concerns, people that are trying to understand. They're people that are trying to back Paul into a corner and undermine the truth of the resurrection. But Paul addresses both questions here. Look at verse 35. We read this, but someone will ask, hypothetical objection, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Paul seems to be addressing the two major philosophies of the day. The first, how are the dead raised? We talked about this briefly last week. The predominant feeling in the Greek or Roman world was there was no bodily resurrection. After death, we simply became spirits who either kind of floated around without anywhere to go or kind of were absorbed back into the universe. Kind of like ghosts, if you will. Kind of that idea of this incorporeal form just kind of out there somewhere. And they seem to be asking, thinking they've got Paul in a corner, well, by what means, by what power is there a bodily resurrection? This is ridiculous. Because it ran affront to what Greek and Roman thinking was at the time. 
But there's also a second objection here. We get a follow-up question to this. What kind of body do they, or with what kind of body do they come? You feel how this is doubling down? It's a critiquing, criticizing question. Well, if there's really a resurrection from the dead, well, what will their bodies be like? This seems to betray a bit of what some of the common Jewish thought would have been of the day. There was less uniformity within Jewish thought on this, but there were some rabbis who believed in a physical resurrection, but they thought the resurrection would be of kind of a similar form and nature of the bodies we have now, which led to some really strange questions where people were like, well, how does that work? What if a body is dismembered or lost at sea or burned in a fire? Isn't that going to be kind of grotesque and strange? It's almost the sort of idea of zombies right? The living, walking dead. People were like, that's really strange. Saying, what kind of bodies are we talking about? Thinking, that's ridiculous, Paul. How can there be a resurrection of the body? That would be these strange zombies. I bet those of you that are youth didn't expect we'd be talking about ghosts and zombies in church this morning, did you? Seems to be their criticism. This is all fables. This is all ridiculous. And both of these questions are similar to the sort of derision and skepticism we face today, too, is it not? The sort of the resurrection is ridiculous that we get from the world. As we approach Easter, my news feeds have included people poking fun at ridiculous fundamentals who celebrate Easter and think somebody came back from the dead. Our world and our culture looks at this and says, what do you guys believe in, zombies and ghosts? You're ridiculous. So Paul sets about responding to both skeptics by offering two assurances to the Corinthian church here in this section in 1 Corinthians 15. First, he assures them of God's resurrection power in verses 36 through 41. God's resurrection power. Look at this. I love the way Paul starts this off. Verse 36, you foolish person. This skeptic who thinks they've got the trump card to win the argument and to shut Paul up You foolish person. You're entirely missing the point. Now, this is extremely strong language from Paul. If you have an NIV Bible, it's going to read, what a foolish question. If you've got the ESV, it says, you foolish person. But the NASB probably gets the Greek the best when it says, you fool. You fool. You're asking the wrong question. Which begs us to ask the question, why is Paul using such strong language here? Why does Paul criticize them so significantly? Aren't they just asking a question? And after all, there are no dumb questions. Besides, didn't Jesus critique people for calling people fools in his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5? This is critical for us to understand. These questioners, these skeptics, are not asking a genuine question seeking to understand. They are refuting the very thought that God has the power to raise the dead. Paul is criticizing their rebellious attitude, not their lack of knowledge. And this is a warning some of us need to recognize here today. Maybe here this morning, you're someone sitting there going, I'm not sure about all this resurrection stuff. I'm not really sure about this Christianity stuff. Scripture reserves some of its harshest language for those that would limit or diminish the God of the Bible. Paul looks at those that think they have a trump card. In the modern thought of the day, they thought they knew better than the Bible and better than God, and they said, what kind of body do they come with, Paul? Paul says, you fool. 
you're missing the whole point. And more than missing the point, you're diminishing God's power. Paul says, your skepticism is ridiculous. Because, in fact, you see this sort of thing all over the place in the natural world. He lays this out. Look back at verse 36. He says, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. He's speaking to this agrarian culture that they would have been familiar with planting and harvest and these sort of things all the time. And he says, in fact, you see this yourself. You plant a seed in the ground like it's dead, and it springs forth into new life, doesn't it? And it's worth noting that as we walk through this whole first section, you'll note a parallel to Genesis chapter 1 in your Bibles. We don't have time to walk through it all in our time together this morning, but go back and read Genesis 1, and you'll note a lot of similarities with this section here. As Paul highlights life coming from nothing, order coming from chaos, he says, you see this in the created order, and he gives them two illustrations of this. First, the illustration of sowing seeds. Look at verse 37 and 38. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, to each kind of seed its own body. Paul is describing what's known as germination in the world, right? And though we're not an agrarian culture, we're not planting and harvesting, I know some of you are, but most of us live in the city. But we have a yard and we have grass and we have plants and we know how this works. We take a tiny little seed that doesn't look like very much and we put it under the soil and we dump water on it and by some incredible occurrence, a plant comes out of that at some point. Well, I mean, assuming all the conditions are right and... Okay, for everybody else, a plant comes out of that. When I plant things, nothing comes out of it at all. And we look at it and we go, we know that's going to happen, but you can't really control it, can you? You can't really make them. I mean, you can stare and you can even play, you know, Bach and Beethoven and all those things that people do for their plants. You can't make that seed become a plant. Paul's making that this very same point here. He's saying, you plant it and it looks like a seed, and all of a sudden, not because of you, it sprouts into this plant. Now, quick note for those of you that are horticulturalists, if you're finding yourself saying, well, Brad, you know, seeds don't actually die before they come back to life. Yes, I know that. And I believe that Paul knows that as well, just for the record. Okay? But he's drawing a parallel between the bearing of a seed and the rising of a new plant, the burying of a dead body and the rising of a resurrected body. He's pointing back to those that have fallen asleep, and he said the seed that gets buried in the ground is like those believers who have fallen asleep. It's awaiting this resurrection. And then he compares the seeds, and this is a really interesting thing that, to note here. He notes both their distinction, their difference, and also their similarity. He says, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, Right, he says, these things aren't the same. There's a difference between the seed that gets buried and the plant that comes up, right? The seed is dry and it is coarse and it is lifeless and it is stale and it is any number of things, right? You can think of a piece of corn or something like that. But what sprouts is green and it's alive and it's growing. You see the difference? But it's still the same plant. He says it is the same and to each kind of seed its own body it's not like you plant a strawberry seed and a peach tree grows. It's not like you plant a grass seed and an oak tree grows. Built into that DNA, there is a similarity. What will grow out of it will be similar to what was there, but it will also be different. 
but it will be all an act of God. Look at verse 38. But God gives it a body as he has chosen. Remember a few chapters ago, Paul talked about God giving the gifts as he chooses. Here he says God gives life and a body as he chooses. This illustration of seeds being sown is an illustration of God's power to animate. He said, God has the power to raise our new bodies to be familiar yet distinct from our old bodies. We're not going to be ghosts and we're not going to be zombies. We're going to be ourselves, we're going to be who we are, but we're going to be in an entirely new body. It will be familiar and recognizable, but it will also be unimaginable. And then he notes a diversity that's in creation as well. He says, let me give you another illustration of this. Look at verse 39 through 41. He says, there's diverse flesh in the world. Verse 39. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Now, he's not trying to go through the scientific understanding of Kingdom, phylum, class, order, family, genus, species. Look at that. I remember that from high school biology. He's not trying to create that, but he is noting that there are these different types of bodies that God has given these different fleshes in the world, humans, animals, birds, fish. Note the similarity to Genesis 1, each according to its kind. He says, and to each kind of seed its own body trying to note for them this reality, not all flesh is the same. He's, he's saying that God has equipped the birds to have the right kind of body to fly in the air. God has equipped the fish to have the right kind of body to breathe water in the water. God has equipped humans to have the right kind of body to function in their environment. God has created each body perfectly suited for the environment in which it is to live. That's true now. That will be true at the resurrection as well. He notes another kind of diversity in the body that we see here. Look at verse 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. Speaking of the sun, moon, and stars, the heavenly bodies, the, the things that are flaming and burning out millions of miles away. Are you familiar with that new telescope that they've recently launched that's replaced Hubble? We are seeing things that we have never seen in the universe again, and we are staggered again at how far these things are out and how magnificent these things are, and yet there is no two stars that are the same. It says there's a difference between these heavenly and earthly bodies, and again, note the similarity to Genesis 1, right? God creates the sun, moon, and the stars, different forms of light to rule the day and rule the night. And he said, because of this diverse bodies, there's diverse glory. Look back at verse 40. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. Seems like kind of a strange sentence, but he's saying, okay, there's these heavenly bodies that have been given their domain, there's these earthly bodies that have been given their way of functioning, and they're unique in their glory because of the environment they're in. They have a unique splendor, they have a unique glory. They uniquely reflect God's glory in creation. The stars and the sun and the moon scream the glory of God. The Psalms tell us of that, right? But humanity reflects the glory of God in a different way. The animals reflect the glory of God in a different way. The fish and the birds, they all reflect the glory of God in a different way. So there's a unique splendor, there's a unique glory to the unique bodies that God has given them. Here, Paul illustrates God's power to differentiate. 
He says God has the power not only to animate these appearing dead bodies, but also to differentiate and create bodies perfectly suited for the environment they're in. God will give us bodies perfectly suited for the new environment we'll be in. Perfectly suited for the new heavens and the new earth that we're meant to occupy into eternity. Paul's point here is that God has the power to give us new distinct bodies, both to animate what appears dead and to differentiate the old from the new. He's addressing this cynic. What sort of bodies do they have when they come back? How will the dead be raised? He says God has the power to give new life and new distinct bodies. Not talking about ghosts, not talking about zombies, those are both fairy tales. God will do something magnificent. He has the power to accomplish it. And that reality should be a reminder for us today, too. As our culture screams, isn't resurrection ridiculous? We don't see that in the natural world, do we? Said, no, we don't. That's what makes it a miracle. Let me warn you this morning. If you're sitting here today and you're going, this is all ludicrous. Dead bodies don't rise. Dead things don't come back to life. Let me warn you as gently but as firmly as I can. You mock the resurrection at your own risk. God has the power to raise the dead and to give them new bodies. You mock the resurrection and diminish the power of God at your own risk. Be very warned. Scripture reserves some of its harshest language for those that would shake their fist at God and say, you can't do that. You mock God's power at your own risk. But even for those of us that are believers, it is easy to either avoid the topic of death entirely because we're uncomfortable with it, or to approach it as if it's the greatest threat that we face in this life. So we avoid using terminology like death. We talk about passing away. And we talk about other terminology that makes us not have to come face to face with the reality of our own demise. Or we work as long and as hard as we can to get as much money as we can so that we can prolong the last days of our life just one more day or just one more week as if death is the greatest enemy that we face in this life, Paul responds to both of those things. He says, you don't have to avoid death. We can lament the fact that death is in this world, but we don't have to be afraid of it. We can recognize and grieve that sin has resulted in death in this world, but we don't have to avoid it. The greatest threat in this life is not death. It is eternal separation from a righteous and holy God. Your physical death is not the most important thing. And we can say that as believers because of texts exactly like this. And that should give us hope as well. If you're sitting here this morning and you're struggling with some reality of your physical existence in this life, Paul is reminding you there is no sickness, there is no physical disability, there is no mental illness, there is not even death itself that will have the last word in your life. 
all of that will die with your mortal body and will be a thing of the past with your resurrected body. Whatever you're struggling with, physical, mental, emotional, whatever, that will die with your mortal body and will be a thing of the past when God raises you in your new body. We need to celebrate that and we need to fix our hope on that day as we wrestle with pain and as we wrestle with hurt and as we wrestle with fatigue and as we wrestle with mental illness and any number of things, that hope should ground your faith in the future. We must find assurance in God's resurrection power. Now Paul makes this connection to our lives explicit and he assures the Corinthians of God's resurrection promise. Look at verse 42. So it is, let me make this connection for you. So it is. And then he goes on to note four differences, four distinctions of our earthly existence from our new bodies, our current existence from our future existence. Let me read this section, verses 42 through 44. He says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is, or it is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Picking up on a theme Paul's trying to explain here, there's something different about the old existence, that body that's buried in the ground, and that new existence, that new body that God promises. Let me just walk through these four distinctions briefly, and each of one of them is marked off by sown and raised. He's still relying on that idea of the seed imagery, and he's helping them see this. What is sown is raised. First, perishable versus imperishable. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. This perishable idea isn't a hard thing for us to understand. Your Bibles may interpret it corruptible, affected by sin, having this degenerative effect, right? We call fruits and vegetables that we buy perishables in the grocery store because if you leave them out on the counter, they will perish, we see this throughout the created order. We see this reality of everything is kind of going downward constantly. This entropy, as thermodynamics would call it, this disintegration, this dissolution. If you're unfamiliar with that, all you have to do is look at the aging process. Anyone over the age of 30 can speak to this reality. Or as a separate point, those of you that enjoy working out, enjoy running and lifting weights and all of these sorts of things, you know, clearly, that's not me, okay? So I'm going to ask you guys. <laughs> Do you know how long it takes before those muscles you're so thrilled with begin to atrophy and disappear? Two to three weeks. Something like 15 days before those muscles that you've worked on for months begin to disappear. The very world we live in screams that our bodies are perishable. They're corruptible. You begin dying the day you take your first breath. But what is raised is imperishable. The new bodies will be imperishable. They will be unaffected by sin. They will be unaffected by aging. They will be unaffected by any of these things that we see. We won't get old. We won't age. They will be imperishable. They will be fit to live for eternity with Christ. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. Second, what is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown, or, or excuse me, what is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. Verse 30 or 43. 
This idea of dishonor is also pretty easy to understand. It's that idea of exulting. Honor is like exalted or glorious or lifted up to be viewed. I think he has in mind this image-bearing idea that he's going to bring up again later, this idea of reflecting God's glory appropriately. Adam was created to reflect God's glory back to him, to bear God's image for creation, in creation. And when sin entered the world, we don't bear that image perfectly anymore. The image of God is still present, but it's clouded. It isn't seen the way it was intended to be seen, much like a dirty mirror. A mirror intended to give you a reflection back of what is seen in it. And as it gets covered in filth, as you get covered in fog when you step out of the shower, the image is still there, but it's not as clear. It's not as distinct as it was. We don't reflect God's glory back to him the way we should because of sin and because of our fallen state. But that's not the way it will always be. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is raised in splendor. Not the splendor of ourselves, but the splendor of reflecting back to God appropriately his glory and his majesty. Makes me think of Christ's transfiguration in Matthew 17. I'm not trying to say it's an exact parallel, but that idea of beholding God's glory. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. Thirdly, what is sown in weakness is raised in power. Again, we don't have to illustrate this idea of weakness, limitations mentally, physically, emotionally. We get tired, we burn out, we get exhausted, we wrestle emotionally, we get short with our kids, we struggle because we are weak. I always find it funny that the world will tell, especially young people, you can do anything you set your mind to. They're not true. If it was true, I would have played for the Huskers in college. (laughs) If it were true, I would have spent a a lot fewer hours preparing this sermon because I'm weak and exhausted and not as intelligent as I would like to be. You can't set anything your mind to because we are weak. We are frail. We know that. But what is raised is raised in power, is raised in strength. And kids, if your mind initially runs to, that means with my new body, I will be like Superman. I don't know if you can go that far. I'm not sure that's what he's saying. But there will be a distinction from our weakness to the strength and power that we'll have when we're raised. Again, not our power, not for our glory, but reflecting Christ. And then lastly, in addition to weakness versus power, we see this, and this is an interesting phrase, right? He goes on to explain the natural body versus the spiritual body here. It is sown a natural body, It is raised a spiritual body. This is interpretively tricky. These terms are a little bit strange. It doesn't so much convey what we intuitively think. We tend to think in terms of like tangible, physical versus spiritual kind of ethereal. It's not corporeal versus incorporeal. It's not tangible, touchable, physical, but it is the empowering force behind it. What enables and what empowers this body is not natural, It's not operating on a human level, the way humans have operated since Adam, this idea of operating out of our own strength. Instead, it will be operated, powered, motivated by capital S, Spirit. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. Saying our spiritual bodies will be responsive appropriately to the Holy Spirit. 
We'll be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We'll be enabled by the Holy Spirit. We'll be raised by the Holy Spirit. Not by our own strength. Not on our own natural ability. But in God's power. The point he's making with these four distinctions is that our resurrected bodies will be infinitely superior to our current bodies in every possible way. Think about that. The resurrected bodies will be infinitely superior to our current existence and experience of life. We don't know exactly how, but we know that they will be. And then Paul moves on to highlight the implications of this distinction. In verse 44, he says, is, or if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. And at this point, he's going to contrast Adam and Christ, the first Adam and the second Adam. Paul loves to make this comparison between Christ as the fallen Adam, or excuse me, Adam as the fallen humanity, and Christ as the faithful Adam. And he notes these contrasts, and we don't have as much time to move through as I'd like to, so we'll move through pretty quickly here. First, he notices a distinction in nature, verse 45. It says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, and your Bible might have a living soul as a note there, that's important. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, the last Adam being Jesus Christ. He says, this first Adam was a natural, soulish, earthly being. The last Adam, the second Adam, Christ, is a spiritual being. He's a life-giving spirit. He's enabling spiritual life. Then he also notes the distinction in the order, verse 46. But it is not that or but it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. He's saying in order of progression here, we don't start that way and then go to natural. We start natural and then go to spiritual. That's the very reason that death needs to take place. I was going to talk about those that death doesn't take place for here in the end of chapter 15. But for most of us, we will die natural and be raised spiritual. That's what he's saying. That's the order of things. Because we identify with who? Look at verse 47 and 48. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. Again, think Genesis. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. But as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. And this first man was from the earth. Remember, right? God formed Adam out of the dust of the earth and then gave him this soul, this spirit, breathed into him the breath of life. That didn't happen for Christ. Christ didn't come from the dirt. Right? His physical body was human. I'm not undermining that. But his source, his origin was heavenly. Those who are of dust, like Adam, are dusty. They are earthy. They are earthlings, if I can say that. That sounds strange, right? Those that are of heaven are heavenly. And note that there's a reality to the already but not yet aspect of this. We live in our physical dusty bodies imbued with the Spirit of God, waiting for the day when our bodies and our spirit will be fully spiritual. And he notes the relevance here at verse 49. Look at this. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Then just as you have walked in the ways of your father Adam, as a dusty, earthly, fallen, sinful person, identifying and following the footsteps of your father Adam, one day you will bear the image of Christ. One day you will walk in the footsteps, you will bear the image of heaven, of the man of heaven. 
Paul here is drawing the connection of the truth of the gospel. He's saying, for the wages of sin is death. Since Adam fell, we all fell with him, and we live our existence in this earthly, dusty, physical, fallen state. But through Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection on our behalf, we have the promise that today we can have hope, and one day we will appropriately bear the image of Christ in our bodies as well as in our souls. See, and if you place your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ, while now you bear the image of Adam and deal with the fallen nature that you fight every day, one day you will bear the image of Christ perfectly. Then our resurrection bodies will be like Christ's resurrection body. We will perfectly bear the image of God. We will perfectly reflect the image of Christ. Right now we struggle with sin and we struggle with weakness and we struggle with these perishable bodies. That won't always be the case. I love the way Paul puts this in Philippians chapter 3. Turn to the right in your Bible, just a few books. First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, just four or five books to the right. At the end of Philippians, the end of chapter 3, Paul explains this process so well. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He's contrasting believers with unbelievers. He says, but our citizenship, believers, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That was last week, right? He will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. He will make us able to bear his image correctly. The point here in this section of 1 Corinthians is that God has promised to give us new spiritual bodies. Bodies that are fit to inhabit the eternity in the new heavens and the new earth, seeing Christ and being with God forever. God has promised to give us bodies that function to do what he's created us to do. And in light of that, I would want to give you two cautions and two encouragements from this text. First caution that I would say from a text like this is, Try not to get overly speculative here. Everything in us when we hear of this reality in heaven and this new body, we want to ask all these questions. Well, what does that mean? Will I be able to? I mean, it appears that Jesus was basically walking through walls when he walked into the disciples and said, hey, here I am. Can I walk through walls? The text doesn't say. Be cautious, speculating, but be firm on what it does say. That new body will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual. Secondarily, I would say, don't get overly consumed with this body. I know, again, there's some muscle-bound marvels out there. Okay? But no matter how many weights you've lifted over the course of your life, this body's going to die. It's not going to be the new one. No matter how many diets you go on, your new body doesn't matter the weight you die at. He's like, Brad, I know you're a living example of that. <laughs> I get it, I get it. You don't want to laugh because... Hmm. 1 Timothy 4, verse 7 and 8 says it this way. Rather, train yourself for godliness. 
For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also the life to come. Paul's saying to Timothy, go ahead and go out and run your marathon, that's fine, but training for godliness is more important. If your exercise routine replaces your devotional routine, there's an issue here. Be cautious getting overly consumed with this life and this body. It will die. But in light of that, two encouragements. First, long for this day. As believers, it is okay to lament the fallen existence we have and to long for this resurrection. All the implications of a perishable, dishonored, weak, natural existence will one day come to an end. It is great to long for that day. It is great to look forward to the day when you won't feel the pain you have now, when you won't have the disease you have now, when you won't see the death you see now. Long for that day. Rest your hope and assurance in that day. But work for that day. Live like there's an eternity now. Live like the people you interact with and see day in and day out will also live an eternity somewhere. They will all either spend an eternity in a resurrected body with you in the new heavens and the new earth, or they will spend an eternity separated from God in hell. Live like there's an eternity today. We must gain assurance from God's resurrection promise. We must ground our faith in that reality. But as I said last week, this assurance also functions as an antidote for this fractured, divisive church of Corinth. And so we see our key point for this week, the message and the reason I think Paul is laying this out where he is in 1 Corinthians is this. Our shared human frailty and dependence on God are sources of unity in the church as well. The recognition of our common weakness should motivate us to difference for one another. As we recognize that we're not as strong as we think we are, we're not as wise as we think we are, we're not as mature as we think we are, we're not as perfect as we think we are. We live in a fallen body waiting for that perfected body should motivate a difference for one another, and it should motivate a common dependence on God that should draw us together. As we all admit that we can't accomplish God's purposes in our own strength, and we can't do what God would have us do in our own power, it should draw us together as a church as we pursue the mission that God has given us. We should find unity in our frailty as believers. So was Shakespeare right? Is life simply a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing? I would argue that if this life is all there is, if this physical existence and this physical body is all there is, I would have to conclude that he was right. And everything we do here is really worthless. In Paul's own words, we are among all people most to be pitied if this life is all there is. But, but, if God truly has the power to raise the dead, 
And if God truly has promised you to do so one day if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then we have hope not only for this life, but also for the next. Amen? Let's pray. Father, these are challenging realities to consider, but they are such an incredible source of hope for believers. Pray that you would press these realities and these truths into our hearts and into our minds. Help us to live in light of eternity. Help us to live in light of your power to raise the dead and your promise to do so for those that place their faith in you. Father, I ask that this would be a real, tangible source of hope for us this week, that you would use it to motivate us to go out and share the hope that we have because of Christ's resurrection from the dead with those that don't yet know you. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.